Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op, the premier online source for your freshwater aquarium needs. Aquarium Co-op offers the best products available on the market to date. From my personal go-to fish food of extreme krill flakes to Fritz Complete Water Conditioner, you can be assured Aquarium Co-op is only carrying the best. And let's not forget that Aquarium Co-op has a massive selection of live aquarium plants to choose from. From Anubius to Valisinaria, there are always so many options for you to plan your next community tank or aquascape. And right now, I would encourage you to check out a relatively new plant to the lineup, Cryptropica. It grows so full and bushy, it has easily become one of my favorites in my 75-gallon community tank. And as a disclaimer, I am an employee of Aquarium Co-op, but more than that, I'm still a huge fan and customer. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Monday, February 24th, 2020. My guest today is Paul Sherman. Paul is the co-owner of River to Reef Aquarium Setup and Maintenance Company. He's also a frequent speaker at East Coast Fish Clubs, speaking on topics such as brackish aquariums, paludariums, riparians, and vivariums. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> Paul, you there? Yep. <laughs> okay. I'm here. Sorry. No, no worries. Uh, so, first off, let me apologize to you, Paul, because this interview has probably been like a year and a half or two years in the making because you and I, we, uh, you were one of the, the many, many people that I met and uh, had a connection with and was like, oh man, I should bring that person on the podcast uh, at Aquatic Experience 2018. And it's just now you know, February of 2020 that I'm finally getting you on the podcast. And there's been a couple times where I've reached out to you and schedules didn't align or you were free and I just dropped the ball. So thank you for sticking with me and being willing to come on and be an interview uh, and, and, you know, talk about your yourself and your experiences in the hobby. It's not a problem. I mean, things happen. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a year and like three quarters, but you are gracious. I appreciate it, Paul. Thank you for, uh, thank you for not taking me to back to the woodshed. Um, so I guess just start with how I got into brackish or do you want more of how I got into fish in general? Yeah, typically we do, uh, we do the, the origin section on the podcast. And so if you wouldn't mind just kind of, you know, giving us an overview of how you got started into the hobby. And I, I have some suspicions that you keep more than just fish. So, you know, feel free to embellish and, and just let us know who Paul Sherman is as, um, you know, an, an aquarist and any other, you know, kind of live animal interests that you have. Okay. Well, uh, from going to fish clubs, I've noticed it's a little bit more unusual, but, um, my mother actually got me into fish. Um, usually I've noticed it's most people's fathers. Um, my dad's not much of an animal person. My mother is completely, and we started with just a basic goldfish tank and, kind of was a disaster. Uh, my mom had fish, but didn't really know 100% what she was doing. With um, goldfish, she always had tropical, so it was a little different. But over the years, um, we just kind of expanded into other fish because goldfish didn't really work out so well. And no one also told us that they were extremely dirty. Uh, then eventually, I kind of just stumbled across mud skippers at the local pet store I went to like three times a week just for crickets for my reptiles and decided that I kind of want to try something weirder. <laughs> I mean, my mom wasn't surprised because of the fact that every animal I ever owned at this point never was the common just cat, dog, or hamster. It was 
was the weirdest thing I can possibly find and own. Nice. What uh what age was this at? Uh I guess I was about sixteen or okay. fifteen. What was it fifteen or sixteen? Uh, and I'm sorry, I should have uh, phrased this a little better. Was it fifteen or sixteen that your uh that you that you discovered the mudskippers and wanted to keep one of those? Or were you fifteen, sixteen uh, is when you and your mom got into with the, the first goldfish tank? Oh uh, no, the goldfish tank started when I was like two. Oh wow, okay. So there's always been like fish around. Uh, the mudskippers was more just like I've heard of them, see them on Animal Planet. Remember vaguely from like Ren and Stimpy the joke about muddy mudskipper, but other than that, not much else. <laughs> Ren and Stimpy about them. Good times. And then I went to the pet store for crickets one day, and it was just sitting there in like a critter keeper on a shelf. So I was like, that's. Something different I haven't seen yet at a pet store, and I thought I'd want to try it. So went home and started researching what these things need, and found out that the one at the store was the African Mudskipper and was not something I actually wanted to keep. And, and why is that? So, so, so I guess first to just kind of um, interrupt and interject some of my newbie questions. So everybody that listens to this probably knows that I've never mentioned having a brackish aquarium. I've never mentioned having mudskippers. Um, and those things are true because I've, n- I've never had brackish or mudskippers. So I'm going to ask you all sorts of newbie questions, and we're going to kind of go down this brackish mudskipper journey together. Um, so they had an African mudskipper. Um, I guess if you could kind of weave in the different kinds of mudskippers and then why you knew you didn't want the African. So there, when I through my research, I found out there's only two that fairly that show up at all in the aquarium trade, at least in New Jersey, um, which is the Indian mudskipper and the African. The Indian I found was a lot easier to uh, keep. I mean, they max out at four inches versus the African mudskipper that gets a little over a foot. Oh, wow. So my whole time keeping fish up to this point has been tanks under 55 gallons. I didn't have really the room or the money to buy very large elaborate tanks. So it was usually just smaller tanks worked better. And by this point, like I had a nat- I had nano reefs going. I had like three or four saltwater tanks, all under 20 gallons. And then I had my freshwater tanks. So I thought that having a mudskipper that grew a foot and also was very aggressive was not something I want to keep because none of my tanks end up as species tanks. If it starts as that way, starts out that way within like a week, it has something else living in it. So when I found that the Indian mudskippers are more compatible with other fish and smaller, and they're also less aggressive towards each other, I decided to look further into those. And I started by asking the store if they could get them, which was no, they couldn't. So I then uh, went online to order them. And that's where (laughs) some of the first problems started which was the first box of mudskippers, more than half of them were dead when I got them. Oh, geez. And the box, like, I knew that before I even opened the box, it just smelled on the porch. <laughs> oh, no. Was it like high noon on a on a hot summer day in Jersey? No, my mail, uh, the person who brought the mail just rang the doorbell and left it. 
they usually would stay around, but I think by this point the box smelled so much they didn't want to deal with it anymore. Oh, geez. Can you go back and without without naming any specific you know people or sources, um, was it fairly easy to find Indian mudskippers for sale online? So at that time, they were actually very easy to find. I only had to wait three or four weeks before they were back in stock, and they had tons of them. So I just ordered them. And I also did actually see these mud skippers when I was probably about nine ish at a North Jersey fish show for sale in the vendor room. So they are, or at the time, they were not hard to find, but I noticed in the last couple of years, I don't see them anymore. Interesting. So was this, um, are you, were you getting them from somebody that's breeding them locally? Are they, are they wild caught? Is it like a, an online, uh, online store for one of the big box retailers selling fish? So they're all wild caught because their life cycle involves the eggs getting washed out to, or the larvae, uh, out to the ocean. Okay. Uh, the eggs are laid inside their tunnel. And then when the tide comes in, it washes the larval form or form of them out into the ocean. And, and, so and the, then they come back. And this is like uh, nerite snails and um, what, what, what else would be another good example? Is it a monos as well that have that kind of life cycle that depend on actually being swept out to the ocean? Yes. Okay. And that's why all these are wild caught, mm-hmm. which the monos I think are possibly doable because I did actually try it. Um, breeding those and I got them pretty far before I ran out of food. <laughs> but um, the mudskipper has not been uh, temp- like bred successfully yet in captivity. So okay. all of these are just coming in from wherever they decide to collect them. So the ones I got were probably from Indonesia or India, somewhere in that region of the world. Uh, they didn't they wouldn't say where they were from, but it was just a small online store that sold exotic and rare fish. Gotcha. Out of, I think it was New York, so they didn't really actually come that far in the mail. And they replaced the ones that died, so then I got the second box, and I finally had the amount that I want to start with, which was, I think I started with 10 of them in a 40 breeder. Okay, so ten, I would have guessed, I would have guessed something like six. So, what was your decision on how did you arrive at ten, um, and how did you arrive at a forty breeder? Um, well, the forty breeder was decided just because I don't like tall tanks or anything that's up too high. So, for the stand and for the tank, I found that the forty breeder was a better size. I mean, I'm not that tall; I'm kind of short, so I don't like having to get a ladder to work on any of my tanks and the 40 breeder also at the time they were still a dollar a gallon so a 40 dollar tank didn't really sound that bad when i needed a bunch of other equipment for this tank so i decided with that and then i ordered i think it was like 10 or so or 12 whatever i ordered um in that range just because for the price per fish to ship in just seemed to make the most sense because at one fish at seven dollars plus another 35 in shipping it really didn't make sense to order one and then every time i kept ordering or every pack up in amount the price per fish went down and it just seemed to make more sense for sure, shipping sure now 
so so playing this out, uh, and I'm sure you had to have thought of this. So, ten mudskippers. Let's say your survival rate is just spot on, 100%. Um, you start getting these guys to. Uh, actually, I guess a question would be: Are you buying them at a at a juvenile size? Are you buying them at a, an adult size? And you know, is the forty breeder sufficient to have a full colony of ten full size adult Indian mudskippers? Or would you just say, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll you know I'll I'll get four or five up to adulthood, and then I'll give four or five away, kind of thing. So of the of all the ones I had, none of them died, and they arrived at about three inches. They grew maybe an extra half inch the whole time. All of them lived perfectly fine in that tank. No one had problems. And I actually ordered a few from a local pet store that could get them a few years later. So I actually added even more in, but I think by that point, one or two might have died. But they were already almost fully grown. Oh, cool. Well, that's good. And then... When you met me, I had quite experience. I actually had an African mud skipper, which was the giant one that was just sitting on the table. And uh, they're a little bit more difficult, I've also noticed, to feed. They were more, like, it had to be live or moving. They would not take pellets or anything, even if it was, like, moving around in the current in the water. They didn't want it. While the Indian mud skippers, the first day in the tank within the first hour they were eating tetram and fish flake hmm. so well, that's, feeding wise, that's always that's always pretty positive when they're just taking flake from them right from the get-go so fish like or feeding wise for these fish uh the smaller ones the indian dwarf mudskippers are definitely a lot easier they also got black worms frozen food fruit flies pinhead crickets all that kind of stuff that moved around too in the tank, but they also lived with other animals and didn't seem to bother anyone. So that also helped with keeping these in a tank for a long period of time without, I guess, like it looking the same all the time. Cause sometimes I would put some of like monos and stuff in when they were small. And then when they got a little larger, I'd put them into my reef tank for a while. And then when they got too big for that, I would usually just trade them in at the pet store for credit. Wait, these were you were doing this with a monos, or you're doing this with with uh yeah the monos the um they kind of look like an angelfish and a silver dollar. Oh oh, I, th- I, thought you, I thought you said a mono like the amano shrimp. I'm like you're what? No what no no the, no the mono like the fish because there's a couple of different ones. I just picked whatever one they had at the smallest size they had, and then. We're grown from like about the size of a nickel up to a three or four inch fish. Oh, okay. So mono monodactylus sebe is that yeah. one of them? Okay. Uh, or argentus. Okay. Or argentus, something like that. Yeah, it, de- but, it definitely. De- yeah, it does look like a. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, because at first I thought you were saying a mono shrimp, and I'm like, what? You're putting them in a in a reef tank? But then, okay. Uh, interesting. So. They lived in there with them. I had fiddler crabs mud, uh, with the mudskippers, bumblebee gobies, some wild strain of sailfin mollies from Florida. There were neorites in there. Uh, I think I just tried all kinds of things in that tank. If it lived in brackish, I tried it. Nice. <laughs> I had chromides. Um, 
all of that just swimming around the lower part of the tank where there was water and then I had land area and I made fake mangrove roots out of some reptile product that no longer I think exists, but they were flexible branches for your reptiles that also kind of just looked like mangrove roots. So I glued a bunch of those together and put them in the tank and it looked like a mangrove forest. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm, so sur- they, I'm surprised I haven't asked you at this point yet or, or interrupted like I just did. So I apologize. Um, the water, right? So we're talking about a brackish tank. We you know we jump straight into mud skippers, but just inherently, um, you know, I, I feel like with myself and most people, just the idea of oh we're we're talking brackish now. Yeah, that figure eight puffer. I'm good. I'm just gonna go stick with my my fresh water. Uh, I'm not ready for that kind of commitment yet. Walk me through, I guess, you know, your research on brackish water, keeping brackish water, making brackish water. Um, are there are there regional things you need to consider, like with the New Jersey water supply? Maybe you have really hard water, so does that impact how you make your brackish water versus me in the Pacific Northwest with very, very soft, basically rainwater, um, what I would need to do to be successful with a brackish water tank? I, I, I think, to me at least, that's like the number one hurdle would be, oh, it's it's brackish water. So with the brackish water, how I usually, when I speak about it at different clubs, I usually start with the fact that it sounds like a problem or like this huge amount of work or a lot of chemistries involved. It's actually easier, I found, than a reef tank or doing salt water in general. So if someone wants to try salt water for the first time, a brackish tank actually is a good starting way to get into salt water because you get to learn how to mix salt and how salt measuring works and water chemistry a little bit more than just your basic freshwater tank so you can try it out and also the fish are cheaper so if you screw it up a little bit and they don't possibly live it's a little bit i guess easier on you than spending the six hundred dollars on like a saltwater angel fish when you can buy the 99 cent molly from a pet store sure sure. also these fish will tolerate uh the salinity not being perfect all the time because they live in environments that are tidal so the water can switch throughout the day salinity wise all day long so these fish don't need the stable conditions that or saltwater fish would need but you can get the feel of how to keep saltwater more steady by practicing on a brackish tank because if you forget to top off the tank one day it's not the biggest deal in the world so So, to to speak in very general terms is it like when you're setting up a brackish water system it's basically half the amount of instant ocean or fritz rpm salt that you would use for like a salt water tank is that am i am i kind of getting in the right ballpark i don't really measure my salt by cups or by weight I add a little bit and then let mix come back a little later and test it with a refractometer just to see where it falls. But um, I try to keep it at like 1.010 approximately, which is almost, well, that's half of seawater. But if you're doing a saltwater tank, it'd be slightly higher than that. The if you doubled it, it would be a little low. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. So it's like half ish, but, um, I've also gone to full saltwater levels with all these fish and never had an issue. Interesting. So every time I did a water change, I would let it fluctuate a little bit 
but here in New Jersey, we actually have soft water and hard water. So where I used to live, the water was extremely hard and alkaline. It was hard to test even where it fell because it was so bad. And fish like Tandekin cichlids and live bearers did great. So doing a brackish tank, typically a lot of these fish do need a slightly higher pH and alkalinity because the ocean would be more alkaline than your river water would be. So having that water there was fine, but like where I live now, the water's more neutral. So I would try to buffer the water up with aragonite sand in the tank. Okay. So the water gets buffered slowly, but not fast or it won't crash. Sure. So I don't have those issues when the water goes off a little. So I never use pH buffer in any of my tanks. I always try for using a calcium-based substrate or rocks in the tank. But otherwise, I would just use tap water. I never used RO. Um, the RO water I had, I would only use for the reef tanks, but I never would use that. Um, Salt-wise, it was instant ocean, and I still use their salt for everything. It's the one I even use for work. Because I f found if public aquariums are using it, it's probably a better uh, salt product. It dissolves easily, doesn't leave residue too much. So nice. That's that, my go-to for salt. That's a that's a free plug right there for Instant Ocean. Hook Paul up with some uh, with some free product. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I've noticed like uh, I think Georgia Aquarium used it for their Ocean Voyager tank, and I have been behind the scenes at multiple public aquariums and i see the buckets of it in their stock room all the time yeah what um so. so so to continue being a complete newbie at this uh, a refractometer how do you how do you utilize that so when you look through a refractometer there's going to be a blue half and a white half and where that the blue and the white meet that's going to be your reading so there's a little window that you have with a cover, you lift the cover, you put some water from your tank on it, you close the cover and then give it 30 seconds for the temperature to kind of stabilize because it is a little bit affected by temperature. And then you just find a very bright light source and point it towards it and look through the, I guess it's kind of like a telescope. And then you're gonna see that line and that's where your salt reading would be. And eventually, Every now and then you do need to recalibrate these, but they sometimes come with a solution to do that. So every now and then I just check it to make sure it's calibrated properly. But the one I bought about, I guess it's now been 15 years ago, I've never had to calibrate that refractometer. Nice. It still works perfectly fine from the original setting. Nice. So I'm lazy, so I, I would I would probably ask you for a recommendation on that because I hate calibrating like pH meters and all that stuff. Unfortunately, they actually don't make that one anymore. Oh, nice! And don't break it, Paul. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, that one too weighs two to three times the weight of a new one that they sell now. So I am not so. a a chemist. I don't have any specialty in terms of water. So when I heard that when, when I've Ask, actually asked somebody for the first time like what a refractometer was or um, we were doing some product with, with with testing a certain salt product and um, 
understanding what's happening with salinity at various points and comparing it to rock salt and all sorts of fun stuff that we're, uh, that we're doing. I had never tested for salinity before, and so this person threw out a refractometer. Oh, okay, well, well, how does that work? Should we get one of those? And uh, they had mentioned that, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a visual thing. And so I, I was kind of taken aback and surprised that you actually test for salinity through a visual, uh, visual means, like visual testing. That just seems really strange. Is there, um, in your experience, is there another way to test for salinity? Or is it just that, oh, yeah, the next way to test it, like an electronic solution is, you know, through the roof in comparison to just doing a refractometer? So there's the hydrometer, which is by buoyancy um, in the water. The problem with a lot of those is after six months, they stop working accurately. So you're constantly replacing them and they just don't read it completely accurate. If there's an air bubble on it, it's off. So that's the other method that's on the cheaper side. And then you get into the more expensive stuff and you start getting into digital test kits, which I don't use. I found the refractometer is perfectly fine, but I have had some people tell me that we're colorblind. Using some of these kits can be harder, so a digital kit was actually easier for them. So if you have some problems with differentiating like colors, a digital a digital kit might be worth the investment. Let's do let's but do a little for me I use uh color based kits mainly. So if it changes the color or I'm comparing it to a chart, those work for me for most of my stuff. I do have a digital kit but I do use a lot of liquid kits and stuff like that. All right, so I'm checking out. I'm on Amazon right now, uh, and I'm looking at refractometers, and it looks like, so it, it seems that, like, the first ones that come up, they all mention homebrew, so apparently they use refractometers in homebrew. I Yeah, so um, when I actually went to order one, my mom is actually a Culinary Institute graduate, so I actually asked her if, there was one um, that they used to use at work, and she said they had it for alcohol in her, the food lab. So my mom had one because she was a food chemist, so the lab had all this type of stuff just laying around. Oh, interesting. And I asked her how to use one because she used them at work. Huh. That's super cool. Yeah, and it looks like from a price point wise, and they all seem to have pretty good reviews that, you know, for 20 bucks you can get yourself, uh, you know, four – star rated refractometer i feel like yeah I'm, even the 30 dollars one from petco works perfectly fine okay i feel like i may have to just take a little 20 30 dollar investment just to have one and go around testing salinity i guess i don't know i've never done it before so i feel like i need well, to do this and expand my horizons for some even freshwater fish if i treat with salt um or something i've never really tested it but it might be important to know if there's salt left over in a tank after treating that's anything, a, that's a really that's salt. a really good point. Yeah, that's a very good point because I do uh, my fish rooms on auto water changes. So typically, I just kind of do the handfuls of of rock salt method um, okay. until, until I think I've got enough. Um, and then the next day, uh, depending on the tank size, each one gets something like a like twenty percent water volume in. So it, given that it's auto water change and overflowing, it's probably like a you know fifty percent dilution. But um, nonetheless, it, it would actually be kind of cool just to do that. Um, treat with a specific amount in say one of my 20, 20, 20 gallons or 40 gallons. Um, and then just kind of see what happens 
in the auto water change system from day to day and how that salt decreases. That would be, that actually be kind of cool. I should do that. But yeah, like my friend just ordered one on Amazon. The cheaper one is like completely fine. The one I have, and also at the time when I bought it, you couldn't get one for less than like $50. Okay. You're serious. So they've definitely come down in price and the cheaper ones, even that they're cheaper than what they used to be, they work perfectly fine. Oh, uh, cool. My business partner broke his actually by dropping it on the sidewalk a couple months ago and bought one off of Amazon. It reads exactly accurate to mine and every other uh, calibration solution we've tried. So nice. minimal issues. I have still yet to recalibrate his, so I think they're fine for what you're paying they're a lot better than they used to be. Yeah, no, I mean, my guess would have been like, they're, they're, you know, your starting out models would be like, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks would have been my guess. But just, just again, to, to hear and reinforce that you can get one for 20 bucks and they work just fine. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so Brackish has also, in that way, became slightly easier because you can buy the equipment now at a more reasonable price because... If you've had fresh water, you pretty much have most of the equipment you would need. I mean, your tank, your heater, your light, that's all kind of standard. Um, with the mud skippers, though, because they're, they crawl on land, I couldn't use the standard hang on the back filter. So I went and bought a canister filter, which that was, uh, I would have to admit, the first time I've ever used a canister filter. I will say I still don't care for using canisters it's a love-hate thing um i now just do everything with hang on the backs or sumps hmm. so at the time i wish i knew that and i would have just bought a drilled tank or just drilled it myself and made the tank run off of a sump the canister i just constantly had the leaking problem with it really and it's where's it is it leaking like out of the hose connections uh, into the canister filter or is it the seals around the head of the canister filter as it goes into the body kind of just everywhere it only <laughs> lasted about three years interesting i wonder um, I, huh because they're made for salt water too it's not like it's the introduction of brackish water is you know bad for it and it's not even a full salt water tank it's only about half of seawater are you are you so you're not buying like the ultra generic kind of like knockoff pretend canister filters to like one of the big names are you is it like an actual tried and true no this was like a three four hundred dollar canister filter that didn't wow. work <laughs> was it the g series from fluval that like six hundred dollar monstrosity kind of but it oh, wasn't, okay. i'm not gonna mention names <laughs> but it wasn't it, i will say it wasn't fluval okay. that i will say okay um but it didn't really work the way I thought. Plus, I didn't like seeing the tubes in the tank. And because the tank's half-filled, it's a pain to prime. Oh, okay. So, that was, so I think that's why you weren't running the um, – that's why you're not doing a hang-on back. It wasn't a matter – my first thought was that the mud skippers are somehow going to climb up the, the, the tube. But then you said you looked into a canister filter or you tried a canister filter. So it's a matter of the water volume in that 40 breeder, right? Yeah, because okay. they crawl on land, you need a land source. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like having a turtle. And I can't just put a hang on the back because it's never going to get the water up to the filter. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm going to have to hear that waterfall effect all the time. Yeah. So I just went with a canister because I did look into buying a turtle tank, but the mudskipper would get out. 
through the little plastic thing that goes over the hang on the back section to try to enclose it, but a four-inch fish is a lot smaller than the one-foot-long turtle. Mm-hmm. So I went with the caster. Um, the other thing I learned is uh, with the heater, I probably should have just gone with a standard glass heater. I thought I'd get a more expensive resin-filled heater, and eventually uh, the water got in and rusted it, so when I picked it up, it all kind of just fell out the bottom. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Oh, so nice. a glass heater probably would have been better, so I could have keep, kept a better eye on the corrosion rate of that. But it did say fully submersible for salt water. Huh. That didn't last long. And then for sand, I just used a very fine aragonite sand in the bottom, like you would use in a reef tank. And otherwise, than like that kind of stuff, equipment was essentially the same for fresh water. Like I said, I just used standard tap water didn't need to filter it anything weird with it just water out of the sink and into buckets and, and so let's talk uh temperature for let, let's say mud skippers in particular although you did have them as as a, a community fish in a community tank that's a, a brackish community tank what's the temperature that you're trying to hit here because again given that this is tidal it seems like there could be some significant fluctuation throughout the day i've never i don't know i've never taken the temperature of tides so i don't I'm not sure. So depending on where you are from the mouth of the river or into a bay, into an ocean, it can change a lot. But I was trying to keep the tank around 76 to 78, which is my just general tropical fish temperature. Okay. Um, Almost all my tanks are at 76 to 78 degrees all the time. But the air in the tank ran closer to 80. So the light on top was a fluorescent so it created heat and because it was a sealed glass top as much as i could mm-hmm. um i even used packing tape to seal it up further because i didn't want them to get out plus they also need high humidity it just created a greenhouse effect and the tank was always just humid and hot as soon as you opened it it was like kind of walking out of the airport when you go to Florida oh, in the nice, summer. Nice. Hey, you're you're New Jersey area, man. New York. That the you guys have some pretty pretty humid summers too. <laughs> well, I mean, I spend a lot of my time in Florida, so no, I know no, I, I'm with you too. I'm with comes you. Out. Yeah, no, I'm totally but, with you. Um, I guess the other thing too I learned a lot about the whole brackish environment, not so much from where these things are from, but my mom's backyard in florida is um an estuary so you get the water from the river flowing into the gulf of mexico and she's on the bay right where that all happens so i kind of get some ocean fish sometimes in the yard but i also get some freshwater fish like tilapia swimming by that's awesome so i've been able to see a lot of what these environments would look like in the wild plus also here in new jersey we have tons of that up and down our coast that i've actually gone collecting in with the fish clubs so i got to take water samples or do anything like that with uh real environments here but not so much in other countries but they all should be very similar in function Mm mm-hmm Going back to the actual uh, tank itself, so 
you're you're talking about you know the the potential for the mudskippers to escape. We're also saying that we need you know a a land area for them. So I guess kind of as best you can describe without visual aid. So this is going to be a little bit of a challenge on like a normal fish club presentation. Uh, like what did this tank look like? How high is the actual water? Like where is the the land for them? Because because in my head you you'd have it at least you know maybe the tank is only fifty percent water, and then you've got kind of a you know you've got this land section 50 percent water or at least you're utilizing 50 percent of the height so that would have to be a fairly considerable leap for the mudskippers although watching a, a i think it's like a bbc video that's floating around facebook right now the mudskippers that they were showing uh can jump pretty darn high so i guess there goes my yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the right if looking at the tank on the right side i glued in a acrylic panel to create a wall and coned it in and underneath on the right side i put a whole bunch of that expanded pond foam so it would take up more volume and then on top of that i put about a six inch five inch layer of aragonite sand so that kind of created the land bank area of the tank which was about a third of the tank and then covering the acrylic so you didn't see it, I did more expanded foam to create a fake rock wall. And then the other two thirds of the tank was all the fake mangrove uh, roots that I said earlier was the reptile mm -hmm. flexible branches. So they had that whole area as mangrove forest to crawl around up and down on the roots and stuff. But the water was about um, eight to ten inches. So in a forty breeder, that's almost I would say two thirds of the way up. Yeah, what's a is a forty breeder is what sixteen inches? About that. Yeah, okay. So it was most of the the two thirds was uh, deep water, but again because they can jump, they just kind of jump branch to branch and stuff, and also having those roots created. Uh, visual breakup so they had different areas to hide and crawl on mm -hmm. but I noticed when there was too many mudskippers in a tank they start to climb on the glass because their fins are fused like a suction cup so they can actually suction cup the things and that's when I knew if there wasn't enough space ever in a tank with them but I never had a mudskipper sit on the bottom in the water or on the glass so I knew that approximately 10 that were in there was a safe number to house without there being too much competition. Okay. And then in terms of behavior, like, you know, having these mudskippers, that's a whole different, um, it, it adds a whole different dimension to enjoying and watching and, and seeing how these creatures behave compared to say like angelfish or tetras or, you know, any of these other uh, normal fish that we would keep in a freshwater aquarium. So what what are mudskippers doing? Because already it sounds like they're doing some crazy stuff of jumping from the fake mangroves and, you know, they have the potential to suction cup themselves and climb around. Like, it sounds like it's, it, it's a lot of fun to probably watch them, yeah? Yeah, so their tank, uh, typically, they kind of just had their own little areas that you would kind of find each one. But when it came to feeding, that's when I would actually see more interesting behaviors out of them. So I used to feed them in a scallop shell to keep the mess down. So I'd lower a scallop shell onto the sandbank. And I noticed the ones that occupied the sandbank, they would always have 
the food first. But as other ones came, the most these things would ever do is flare their dorsal fin at each other, and that's about it. And that usually just resulted in the other one doing the same and then coming back later to eat. Other than that, they really don't interact with each other heavily. Um, Intelligence-wise, I think they're kind of up there more with, like, cichlids because they learn to recognize the dish as a food source, and they recognize a little bit who feeds them who didn't, and they were slightly interactive. Yeah, the, there's a but, couple, there's a couple people online that have uh, that have mudskippers. I'm not sure if uh, Jimmy, uh, our editor from Aquarium Co-op, if he still has his mudskippers, but Zenzo Tazawa has his mudskippers, and uh, Jesse from I think it's HC Aquatics has mudskippers, and I think that's where Jimmy fell in love with them. So there is a little bit of kind of mudskipper love that's going around right now, and kind of the the social media aquatic side of things, and they look like the videos that these guys are, are putting out there. The mudskippers look like they're pretty hilarious to watch and that they do have a lot of personality. And I think, you know, kind of comparing that intelligence level to that of a cichlid um, seems to be pretty, pretty much there, right? Like even maybe even one of the larger cichlids or something that has um, just kind of a lot of personality and seems like there's, there's a lot more there than we would normally expect from a fish. Yeah. So for something that's as small as uh, that type size animal would be, there's a lot more going on than you would think but i would not put them very high in terms of like it still amazes me that a small parrot has as much personality as a small child but in terms of like a fish cichlids definitely are smart they use like tools a little bit i've seen uh cichlids grab things and play with things but these won't really do that because they're not much about changing their environment other than digging burrows, which mine never did in captivity. Other than that, they don't really have a natural instinct to make their environment fit them. So they only have, I would say, behaviors to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. So unlike cichlids that will play with things or destroy things, they weren't destructive so at least I didn't have to provide further behavioral enrichment for them, but they definitely had personality and you could tell that they learned where to go and what to do for certain things. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that, that makes sense given where they come from, right? The tides, tidal areas, like Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not changing that environment. Like you, (laughs) you know, you're not, this isn't like some calm, uh, offshoot of a, of a main river body where you can actually kind of, you know, make home or, you know, like some of the, the cichlids in the Rift Lakes where they can make those giant mating mounds. Like, I, I feel like just those, uh, the tidal changes are just going to wreck anything that you're going to try to do. So you wouldn't even try to evolve that, right? Yeah. So the only animal in that tank that really did anything were the fiddler crabs constantly sifting through the sand and burrowing. Mm. But other than that, most of these fish just kind of dealt with what they had and live where they live. So like the bumblebee gobies and stuff, they just found the shells that I put in the tank and just lived under them. But when I did water changes, every fish knew to go to the bottom of the tank or just get out of the way of anything that was in the tank. More so than like my other fish, like when I do water changes on some of my tanks, things like convict cichlids have to investigate the siphon. Mm -hmm. 
and try to go in it while <laughs> these fish tend to keep a little bit further away from everything and out of the commotion. Gotcha. Gotcha. So do you still have the, uh, the Indian mudskippers right now? Like that 40 breeder that you're talking about? No, because, uh, that was actually a long time ago, and by this point, they've all died, but they lived about five to seven years I had them, so it's been a while since I've had them, but I've had the African Mudskipper, but I don't currently have anything like that now. Um, all my tanks, personally, right now are all under 10 gallons, mm-hmm. so I don't really have anything that would really be suitable for them. I did try two Indian mudskippers a couple of years ago in a five gallon, uh, I think it's about five gallon tank. That's a long tank. And that worked for a while, but those, when I got them, I think the store might've ordered them for someone else and didn't pick them up. So when I got them, they weren't really actually that healthy and they didn't ever gain weight or do that well. Oh, that's a bummer. But um, the one thing I found surprising was, though, I did work for Petco for a while, and being an aquatic specialist, I was in charge of ordering fish for the store. They did actually show up on my availability list of things that you could order. Wow, so you used to work at Petco. That's a whole other nugget of like, Paul, you need to come back and we'll do another hour and talk about uh, your experiences <laughs> ordering for a store and working at Petco and probably helping. Oh, there's dis- a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the one of the angles, and not to digress off mudskippers, because I do want to talk about the African mudskipper and your experiences with that. But I feel like there's so much there's so much negative, like, oh, Petco did this, PetSmart did that, blah blah. A lot of a lot of negativity thrown their way. But I feel like you, having worked there, you probably have some decent positive experiences that you could share um you know just to give just to give them a voice because i would fathom i guess that 80 percent of the coverage about petco and PetSmart from the aquatic social media is going to be pretty negative unless it's when they sell like an fx6 for ten dollars because they don't care about profits apparently yeah there's definitely pros and cons with um any of these big box stores but of PetSmart and Petco, um, I worked with people that worked at both, and there was, again, pros and cons to which one was a better company to work for, but I did work there for a while, and I will say that I did learn a lot from some aspects of it, but there was also a lot that I feel like they need to learn more from the people they employ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I would say the same could be true that any town USA, you can probably go into a mom and pop fish store or a mom and pop uh, full line pet store that sells dog, cat, bird, lizards, and fish, and you'd probably also find them wanting in some in some regards too. So I think it's very easy for us to you know throw stuff at PetSmart and Petco, but it's like yeah, there's a there's a lot of smaller pet shops that uh, they don't do things very well either. Yeah, I mean I've been all over different states and when I immediately upon going to a new state one of the first things I do sometimes is where's the closest pet store oh for sure (laughs) and I go and look at the selection of fish and see what every state has because when I'm in Florida I go to the local fish clubs there and the switch and fit that is available there to the northeast is completely different I mean having the farms down there definitely changes a little bit of what's available and when things are available 
but also I've noticed state laws also play heavily into all of this. Because, like, in Florida, you can't have stingrays and piranhas, but here in New Jersey, they don't care. But also down there, you can have axolotls, but you can't here in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, always, um, that too, like, I might have a fish here, but it might not necessarily be legal where someone else lives. With the mudskippers, I don't think any state has ever banned them. They don't, I could not see these things becoming an environmental hazard anywhere in the United States, mm-hmm. they are not a fish I feel like would be easily adapted to different environments. Yeah, they're no they're no sca- but, snakehead or Asian carp. Yeah, but like saying that in captivity, they're actually one of the hardier fish I've definitely had. But I don't see how their life cycle works, them ever becoming an environmental pest. Mm-hmm. Well, that and our our coasts are just not nearly warm enough for them, right? Even if they got out in the perfect, well, actually, maybe Florida. I mean, that would kind of be the only that that would be like the closest one, right? Like I it, think Florida gets too cold. I mean, where my mom lives, which is not far from almost being like as far south as you can get in on the west coast, it still drops into freezing temperatures. I was there actually almost for a month in December, January, and there was not one day that I was there that I felt like I could wear shorts. It was so cold. And that was that was with all the iguanas, right? It was so cold that the uh, cold snap killed iguanas. They were just falling out of trees. Well, I was there just be, or I left just before that cold snap, but it does happen. There's iguanas running around, and they just at night freeze in the tree, fall out, and when the sun warms them back up, they just come back to life and run off. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, good old, good old invasive iguanas. Because yeah, you would think that. I mean, Florida is just this, um, and I need to have somebody on at some point to talk about the invasive pythons there. But Florida, um, I did have uh, Dr. Melissa Gibbs uh, from Stetson University, and she talked about all of her experience with the invasive plecos and um, just what they are doing to the to the manatees and that ecosystem down there. But it's like if anything, you know, if anything is going to survive in the United States, it will be in Florida. And so for these things to still for it not to be warm enough for a mudskipper um you know yeah like that that makes sense why most states probably are okay with mudskippers the only state i could possibly see these things becoming a problem would be hawaii Mm -hmm. but again i've never actually been but being a rocky or island that's more i mean i know they have sand beaches but they don't really have those tidal areas being islands so i wouldn't see them as being a problem because they need the, they need the mud flats right they need those tidal mud flats that yeah know. and i don't really think they have as much of that but again they do live in islands in other countries but those islands are typically a lot larger than any of the islands hawaii has so i wouldn't see them even being a problem there mm-hmm. no that all that all makes sense also and... they're kind of slow so birds <laughs> We'll find them. <laughs> yeah, even if they could survive, they're kind of terrible, as far as yeah. So I actually got a call from someone who thought they saw some in North Carolina, and I kind of said I don't think that you did. And when I asked for a video, they couldn't 
get one so i kind of just dismissed it do you do you think it was like and this is probably the completely wrong species um like like a smelt or um like the hooligan fish that you know maybe large runs of them will sweep by a beach and or or or, you know go upstream or something like that and get caught on a bank do you think maybe it was that or are they just trolling because they know paul sherman loves mudskippers i think it was just a killifish because there's a killifish i've seen in florida beach itself ah okay so huh. I would assume it's just a killie species of some sort. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that uh, that somebody – had you spoken at their I club mean, before? I mean, we like... have a native fish that acts like a mudskipper, which is the mangrove killifish, the mangrove uh, rivulus, but they can live 66 consecutive days out of the water. All right. I'm busting out so, Google. Mangrove, mangrove killifish. Here we go. Okay, yeah. I mean, let's see. Initial yeah, Google images. native look... versions. Interesting. Yeah, it looks just like a regular killifish. It's a very unimpressive fish, but yeah, they're found in Florida. Okay. Oh, very cool. But um, they're self-cloning too, which is another weird fact about them. Hmm. So it's an all-female species that makes more of itself. It's another brackish fish, but it's not something that people would come across. Um, Occasionally, killifish um, clubs, will someone will have them. But they're not something that is around even in major fish clubs. Oh, cool. I mean, I'm part of North Jersey is one of the bigger clubs I'm part of. And I have never seen this fish come to that club in the, I guess, almost eight years I've been part of the club now. Yeah, I'll have to make a note to uh, include just like a Google image link for this mangrove uh, rivulus, just so people, if they're curious, they can check it out. And, uh, you know, like you said, it's not, it's, you know, it's not going to win any beauty contests, but to hear that we've got something that can no. survive out of water for so long in the United States is pretty neat. Yeah, Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida did actually have them on display last time I was there. Oh, nice. So if anyone's ever in that area, because I know it's a popular destination, the aquarium does or did have them when I was there about a year ago. And it, what what aquarium was that in Sarasota? Uh, Moat Marine Laboratory. Moat Marine? Yeah. Gotcha. It's just a smaller aquarium, but they um, had a small tank in one of their buildings with some. So they are around, I guess, occasionally in zoos too. Oh, awesome. And so what, um, in your in your brackish... Um, mudskipper, you know, kind of progression of hobbyist, you decided to go for the the African mudskipper, which can get up to a foot. That just seems, that seems kind of daunting, I guess. Like <laughs> something that can kind of crawl up on land, jump like crazy, and it's a foot well, long. The aggression part two was a little bit because they don't tolerate each other very well. And there's online reports when I was reading about them of them dragging other tank mates out of the water and leaving them. So someone tried to put mollies in, I think it was, and they dragged the mollies out of the water. What so an I a-hole. didn't really want to <laughs> oh, risk having a fish like that. And then, like I said earlier, none of my tanks end up as species tanks for very long. So I'm going to have this fish that's almost a foot long living in about a 20 long tank taking up that much space and I can't put anything else with it. So eventually I just feel like 
that would not be a fun tank to look at. Because mudskippers aren't the most attractive fish in the world. They're kind of more on the brown-gray scale of color. They don't do a whole lot if they're not actively eating or chasing down food. So it just sits there. And that's kind of why with Indian mudskippers, I want to put mollies and other fish around. So if you can't find them for right away, at least there's other visual interest in the tank. Mm-hmm. And but so you did you so, but you did get an African mudskipper, the one that I saw at Aquatic Experience, or was that somebody else's? Um, that was so I was part of the club's table design and running that table for the club as a tournament. So I found when doing events like this, the best thing to do is that draws someone's attention towards the booth. And at the time, mudskippers were available. So I decided, let me just order a mudskipper because they'll draw visual interest and it's something different. And it usually gets someone who comes over to engage more and ask, what is this or how do I care for it? And it's one of those fish too that I've gotten requests for before. So it was one of those, order it for the event and then sell it to the person who wanted it. Oh, okay. So, so you have an order slash uh, used for an event uh, kind of more purpose. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and that's actually something. So we had display tanks, but nothing seemed in my mind to create the question of how or why or any of that kind of stuff to get the people to ask more, which then might have them ask about the club itself. The other thing was a reef tank in a flower vase was also on the table. A reef tank in a flower vase. That would be that would be pretty cool to see. So that drew also a lot of attention to again ask how does this work and how long is it going? But again, the mudskipper is what is this thing? Oh, that's weird. And also asking about care for them. Because we did another event where I actually did bring my Indian mudskippers to a show to put on display for the club. And for the three days they were on display, I got numerous offers. How much do you want for them? Huh. And I just always told people they're not for sale or you probably can't offer me enough to make me sell them. Because <laughs> at that point, they were becoming rarer to find. So... Um, someone asked me if I were to sell them, what would it be? And I said, well, at least enough to go buy more, but right, right. since they're not available, I really didn't feel like doing that. Mm-hmm. Do you see at any point now, I know you said that most of your tanks right now or all of your tanks right now are kind of that nano smaller tank. Do you see yourself in the future wanting to get at least one more, you know, 40 breeder and set up again and have Indian mud skippers, assuming like availability was there and all that? So if I could do it again, I think I would like to use a drilled 33. I like having that longer profile that's a little bit thinner. And a 33 would be, I think, a decent size. It's the long footprint, but not as wide, not as tall. And I could get probably about five or six into that size tank and not have issues. Because it's about half the footprint of the forty breeder. Mm-hmm. Would you dedicate? Uh, would you do um, like 
both sides would be dedicated to kind of land with a, a center body of water or, um, you know, is there, what else different would you do other than, you know, a drilled 33 versus a 40 breeder? Um, I think maybe in that case, doing a little bit more towards a 50, 50% land or doing it more towards a paludarium setup where there might be more instead of fake plants using live mangrove trees. Again, I would have the issue of the top of them growing out, but I would probably just glue some glass or acrylic together and make essentially a tall dome for the top so the tree can continue to grow without being restricted by the glass top. Oh, that's... And then just do something like that. So that, again, the fish can't get out of the tank, but uh, the tree can continue to grow and also maintain high humidity in the system. Mm-hmm. Now, do but, you do you have any like social media accounts where you post pictures for like, uh, you know, people in your fish club or just anybody that has seen you talk that they can follow and see kind of what you're doing and what your tanks are are like? I mean, only one that I use for posting about that kind of stuff is my work one, which is my company's name on Instagram, which is just River to read the underscore between each word. But um, that's really the only one that I have as like a public account that I post some of my customers' tanks. Sometimes when I get fish in that look a little bit nicer than my normal uh, selection that I get. I mean, sometimes I do sell fish direct at kind of like in-person sale at clubs or other things because mm-hmm. I do order fish quite a bit or shrimp or other things because I'm ordering things for clients anyways I sometimes need to make minimums so order extra and then use the extra fish I'll either sell them at a fish club meeting sell them to someone directly or sometimes I just donate them to to different clubs when I go and speak Oh, nice. And, and so I guess a couple things I'd want to do for us to, to close out this podcast interview would be, uh, one, I want, to, I want to give you a chance to talk about River to Reef and just kind of give a high-level overview of, of what you guys do and if you know what your service area is and if any listeners um, are interested in being able to contact you and what that website is. And just like with the Instagram, we can have all that stuff linked in the show notes as well, but give you that chance. Um, and then also, I'd love to know, you know, where are you going to speak at in the future? Where can people be like, oh, Paul Sherman, I heard you on the question podcast i love you're talking on mudskippers oh you're gonna be at this fish club in a couple months sweet i live in the area so uh let me know what your speaking schedule is going to be like for 2020 if you've got anything lined up so so far this year i've already spoke at two clubs but uh next two is going to be cichlid club of york in pennsylvania on cichlids in a more community setting or with other animals since most people keep cichlids generally with cichlids or catfish and then the other one is going to be actually the Mud Skipper talk at a club in Allentown, Pennsylvania. That's actually kind of fairly new. I don't remember the name of the club, but they are um, a newer club that I'm going to. Let's see, Allentown. So it's kind of on the border with New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's just kind of over the Delaware River. I just wanted to do a quick uh, a quick Google search to see if I could find out what this fish club is, but Lehigh. I've actually been I've been to Lehigh Valley. I've uh, when I worked for Amazon, I went to a couple of our facilities out there. Um, I think it is Lehigh Valley. 
Oh, like Lehigh Valley. Fit. Oh, nice. <laughs> I think that's it. I I don't know why I can't seem to remember it, but um, both of those are going to be March. Uh, Lehigh Valley Aquarium Society. Yeah, let's let's see here if they're uh, if they're promoting. Mr. Paul Sherman and his uh, upcoming talk in March. That's pretty cool, though. You've already given two talks already this year. Yeah, so Jersey Shore was January, and then um, there was, a again, a newer club here in New Jersey in Denville, which is aquatic, uh, I think, Skyland, Skyland Aquatic uh, Water or water garden aquarium club something isn't like that, that. And isn't that the one that uh tim Colletti or uh no not i'm sorry ted coletti, ted, ted coletti yeah i'm actually yeah gonna, it's his club i should be speaking with him later this week actually okay yeah yeah cool. he's a north jersey nec member um he i've known him for a long time now since i've joined north Jer- north jersey so awesome um he asked me to come and speak at his club so i went there about a month ago no, very cool. And I would imagine like, you know, I, I love hearing people talk about fish. I love, um, you know, seeing fish club presentations. And so even if I lived in that area where you're, wh- which club you're going to do it, the Mudskipper talk at Lehigh Valley? Yeah. Yeah. So even, even if I heard this interview with you, I would still want to go and watch you and see your slides and see you talk about Mudskippers there. Um, you know, just because I think, sure, like we were able to kind of have that back and forth dialogue a little bit, but being able to see you do a, you know, kind of a rehearsed, if you will, polished presentation with pictures. Um, you know, I think that would be pretty cool as well, too. So I would still highly encourage people that uh, I know people in Pennsylvania listen to the podcast. There's a lot of them. So go out and see Paul at the uh, newer Lehigh Valley Aquarium Society. And this all started with me speaking at clubs because the person that I think he might have been vice president at the time of North Jersey came over to my house, saw these, and kind of was bugging me to do something about this for the club because it was a weirder thing. And then he had me give a talk again at North Jersey 60th um, anniversary as like a five minute quick presentation on something. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. So it all started because uh, <laughs> that member got me into all this further. But for work, I know you asked. Um, I typically maintain, so it's me and my partner, Bill. Bill is doing a lot more of the saltwater tanks, and I do mainly the freshwater, but we typically try not to use chemicals and try to use more natural and balanced aquariums to keep problems down. Because over the years, if both of us haven't fish, um, chemicals aren't always the way to go. Now, I'm not saying chemicals are bad, but I don't feel like we need to use them as much as we do sometimes. So I did work as a ma- for maintenance under other people, and it was always just, it seemed, instead of just fixing the problem, just putting Band-Aids over problems. Yeah. So I try to do the tanks where the problem shouldn't happen because it wasn't presented to lead to that way. So a lot of the tanks we do are live plants, uh, more natural types of uh, aquascaping, and typically sometimes we try to do biotopes or more regional type areas. So the fishing tank would all be from generally one section of the world. 
So I'm not, you're not going to see fish from Asia, South America, and Africa all in one tank. Right, right. Because sometimes it just creates something a little bit different to look at. And also some of the tanks we do are in school, so then it's a little bit more educational, too, for the school to mm -hmm. use as part of their, I guess, science class. And, and to get a little bit more, and I think I know where you're going with this, but uh, when you say you don't like to use chemicals, are, are we talking, um, we are not putting dechlorinators in that same category, right? You're talking about things that, yeah. you, oh, you've got like a spike algicide. of... Like algaecide. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Gotcha. Um, so instead of using algaecide, if there's really a problem and the tank can't support plants, I would rather use a UV sterilizer. Mm-hmm. Because algae or algae killers um, do have the warning that it can cause cancer on it, so I don't see why this would be good to be putting in the fish tank and then working in it. Mm. So I do actively try not to use things like that when doing tanks. Again, I'm not talking about like water conditioner or medication if needed, but I try not to overdose or dose something that would um not be for what it is like a broad spectrum medication i wouldn't want to use because if it's not an antibiotic or a bacterial infection an antibiotic won't do anything mm -hmm. and now i'm just making more antibiotic resistant bacteria mm -hmm. or like the things so, where if you've got like a spike of ammonia like those you know those I, I don't know what term to use here, but the, the ammonia capture or nitrate, nitrite capture, like those liquids, you don't like to use those as well? Not if I'd rather just do a water change. Yeah, yeah. And I usually tell people water change is usually one of the easiest fixes for most things. Or, or I guess another way to phrase it would be like the cures in a bottle, like the thing where it's, oh, if your water is, like if this is happening, just pour this in and it will fix everything. Like those kinds of products is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I try to use a product for what it really is needed for and when it's needed. I don't just dose to dose things, which from working under other people, that was a common occurrence. Hmm. So you weren't necessarily paying for just the service. You were also paying for sometimes chemicals that weren't necessarily necessary. Oh, so you're billed by the dosage in that case. Or that it took us extra time to do something. Ah, okay, okay. So that wasn't really something I always was comfortable with because the people not ne don't necessarily know anything about the tank. And because you're the one coming in and they hired you as the expert on this they'll just say sure <laughs> mm -hmm. so it's like oh we're gonna put this in because it's supposed to do this well i don't see why this is any different than just using water conditioner yeah no i mean i i, I get that right like there's this um you are you're very cognizant of the trust that these that your customers are placing in you and you don't want to um you know you don't want to you don't want to violate that trust and you want to make sure that you're giving them a fair, honest service for what they're, for, you know, what you're, what they're paying you for. Yeah. And then like, again, with algae, sometimes instead of just dosing, um, I don't see the problem with just putting some Amano shrimp in to control hair algae yeah. or just doing more frequent water changes and just telling the person like, maybe we just need to bump up how many times I do water changes in a month. 
Yeah, because I mean, if they do, even if they do have the outbreak of hair algae, and you're putting in a mono shrimp, that's just that's just cool. A mono shrimp are fun to look at. Like the the mono shrimp are cool in their own right, aside from just you know helping to knock down algae. And then you know, I just typically try to use a more less, I guess, uh, chemical method and more natural or just less uh, invasive or time consuming. Sometimes. Yes, the shrimp will work slower, but they will get it done, and they keep it from coming back mm-hmm. over time. So, given, given versus algaecide that I have to dose all the time. Yeah. So, I've done a little bit of travel on the East Coast in your area, um, but you know, I'm, I'm definitely a West Coast person. What is your service area? So, if somebody in New York or New Jersey, um, I guess, h- how do you describe like where River to Reef will do aquarium servicing? So the unpopular opinion is that it's central Jersey. <laughs> um, depending on where you're from, that doesn't exist, depending on who you ask. But um, growing up in mainly uh, the Union County area, which I would consider central Jersey, um, the shore area a little bit, like north of Point Pleasant, all the way up to the Newark area. Okay. So that's central Jersey. I mean, we do do a few tanks in Brooklyn too, in New York. And, but generally the, I guess I would say the Monmouth County, Union County, Essex, Middlesex, Somerset, those areas. Nice. Yeah. So, so any listeners in that area that are interested or know somebody that's looking for a uh, reputable, trustworthy fellow to uh, help them out servicing fresh or salt water, Paul Sherman, River to Reef. And there was another question I think you asked too. I think uh, there was. No, I think you might have. Um, so we've got your Instagram account, we've got uh, River to Reef, and I've got your website for that. Uh, RiverToReef.net, so I'll make sure that's linked in the show notes for folks. And we did talk about your kind of upcoming uh, two talks that you've got going on. So, no, Paul, I think uh, I think we've covered it. I think, uh, yeah, I think that about does it, man. This was a this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking and just learning so much more about uh, about mudskippers and you know Indian mudskippers, a little bit about African mudskippers, and uh, we spent <laughs> we spent a good amount of time and did an Amazon search for refracti- refractometers. So um, <laughs> no, I, I've enjoyed it, Paul. I you know it, it, like I said, it's been a year and a half, two years in the making, but I'm so glad that you and I finally got to connect. Yeah, it was fun, and like I said, if you did want more insight on, I guess working at a big box store, you can also. Ask me about that at some point. Yeah, there you go, folks. So uh, stay tuned to, to round two with Paul. We'll we will we'll dive into uh, yeah we'll dive into big box and then maybe sprinkle in some of your experience with uh, with cichlids or um, although you do have you've got lizards. Uh, what do you have? Was that a crested gecko for your uh, one of your Facebook profiles? Yeah, that was um, just I I have reptiles. I have fish i had birds I, there really isn't much i haven't had <laughs> we, so maybe but, yeah so maybe round two will be like uh half of it we'll talk about your big box experiences pros and cons and then the other half we'll just kind of dabble in some uh in some reptile talk i've had a uh, past guest uh, rack cross we talked about i, I think actually we, we had a whole episode i think almost probably three quarters of the episode was on uh, dart frogs so dendro babies oh, okay. and that was really really cool diving into that i've never had dart frogs still don't have them but um you know this this is a freshwater 
water primarily podcast, but every once in a while, if I have a guest, because there's so much crossover um, with reptiles and amphibians, if you're a fish keeper, that it's just kind of natural to every once in a while have an episode where we don't just talk about fish and we kind of talk about, you know, something else. Yeah, and some of them actually live together. Well, there you go. So we can we can kind of do like the what goes together and what doesn't go together. Yeah, but like that's actually how I know my business partner. He was my manager at Petco. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it all just kind of falls back to it seems like a lot of my, uh, I guess, life revolves around <laughs> people I know from either fish clubs or from when I worked at Petco for some reason. Nice. Good times. Well, Hey, I mean, if you're a, if you're a fish person, a fish nerd and, and you know, a reptile nerd, I guess you're just going to, you're going to naturally want to gravitate around those people, right? Yeah. So uh, it happens. All right, Paul, well, you are on the East coast. It is getting late for you, man. I really appreciate you jumping on this call. Um, I hope people really enjoyed it and they follow your river to reef Instagram page. Like I said, all this stuff, I'll have notes to it. Um, in the show notes. So Paul, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yep. No problem. It was fun.